Welcome to Pro Corner with Austin Serhoff. I'm really excited to share some news with everybody listening today. In two weeks, I am going to be launching a Patreon page. Now, for those who don't know, Patreon is a site where people can have access to exclusive premium content. I'm going to be releasing bonus content with my podcast guests, um, an insight into my training plan. So that'll be Excel sheet notes, uh, videos of things that I try in my own training. And I'm also going to be collecting training plans and training videos and training tips from other friends of mine that are still in professional sports. And I'm also going to be recording short video clips with experts in the sports industry about ways to get an edge both mentally and physically um, in athletics, in life, basically any way that we can find excellence in high value situations. Um, so keep an eye out. I'm going to be launching the Patreon site on Wednesday, December 2nd. I'm choosing Wednesday, December 2nd to launch the Patreon page because that's also the day that I'm going to be celebrating the release of my 10th episode of the podcast. Can't believe we've come this far already. Uh, I brought in a very special guest for that episode. Um, Jason Lezak agreed to sit down with me and we had a pretty awesome interview and I'm going to release it on that day, Wednesday, December 2nd to ring in the 10th episode and to celebrate the launching of my Patreon page. Um, if you're in swimming and you don't know who Jason Lezak is, I can't help you. But if you are listening and you maybe aren't super familiar with swimming, uh, Jason is a four-time U.S. Olympian. He is the GM of the International Swim League's Cali Condors. And if you're wondering if you have heard that name before, it's because he dropped the greatest anchor leg in the history of swimming in 2008 to beat a heavily favored French team in the 400 free relay at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Most of us around the world that were watching that night remember where we were. I was in my parents' living room uh, as a 17-year-old kid, and like everyone else, my jaw dropped to the floor. Um, so the fact that I get to have him on my podcast 12 years later it really feels like a stroke of good fortune, and I'm really excited for you all to hear his perspective on being a GM, um, progressing through his career and training himself. He coached himself for two years leading up to those 2008 Olympics. And it's really fascinating to hear his story on holding himself accountable, learning from mistakes and making himself better every year. So keep an eye out for that episode with Jason in two weeks and also the launching of the Patreon page. The second bit of info I wanted to share with everyone before I started sharing some info on Jack and we get to his interview. Um, one of the reasons that I would hope that you guys would be interested in subscribing to a Patreon page that includes my training is, for those who don't know, I am currently training to be a professional swimmer once again. I, as they would say, am fully back into the sport. And just to share a bit of good news with my listeners, um, I got my second Olympic trials cut this past weekend at the Richmond US Open site. Uh, in the 100 meter freestyle. And moreover, I got a best time in the event, which is kind of wild to me if I'm being honest. And I'm sharing just a little bit of emotion I have about the situation because I did the 100 free when I was a quote unquote full time swimmer back in the day, when I was doing nine workouts a week, when I was doing the 100 freestyle on Texas relays in the springtime and doing it long course at the Olympic trials and nationals in the summertime, 
I had a lot of opportunities back in the day to throw down a good hundred freestyle. And I did a fair amount of training around it, even if it wasn't one of my main, you know, one or two events, it was an event that I did a lot. And I just beat that time that I did from back in the day, you know, training myself much like Jason does. And that's why he's a hero to me. Uh, swimming twice a week at age 29, sporadic weights, obviously dealing with the same pandemic everyone else is dealing with and missing pool time for a month and even training in my parents' outdoor backyard pool for a couple months, which is a, a 20-yarder with no lane lines. So the fact that I could jump in the pool and do what many people would call a real event, you know, people can say the 50 free, you know, it's just get really strong and have really nice technique and you could probably fake a decent 50 free. And I don't entirely disagree with that. I was really proud of my 50 free last year, but the hundred free you can't fake. And to go a 50.1, to go a best time, to get an Olympic trial cut, um, you know, I guess I am bragging right here, but mainly I'm just sharing with everyone. Like it was a big deal. It was really cool. And I, I couldn't believe that I was able to get to that point this early in what I'm trying to do. You know, I've got plans to expand to more practices uh, in the next phase of my training, have a more regular weight room regimen. And I feel like the sky's the limit for me. Back to Lezak for a second. He did his famous anchor relay split where he was the fastest relay split of all time in his 30s. He was uh, 33 years old. So I've got another four years until, if I'm Jason Lezak, I can be at my own peak. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to go the fastest relay split of all time. I'm far be it from saying that there's like hundreds of people who would do that before me. But I am saying that Jason paved the way for me to feel like I can be at my peak when the time comes. So to pivot to Jack, my guest today is Jack Conger. And Jack is the person that I wanted you all to listen to this week because on top of being a Texas swimming alum like myself, on top of being one of my best friends and just an all-around awesome dude, I was at this meet this past weekend with Jack and it was really cool to catch up with him in Richmond. Jack currently trains in Charlottesville, Virginia uh, with Cavalier Aquatics and with the University of Virginia coaching staff as his main coaches led by Todd DeSorbo. And Jack and I have a long history with each other and one where we've gotten to cross paths and hang out more than the average people who went to the same college but were never actually teammates on the swim team get to hang out. So what does that mean? Well, Jack's four years younger than me. We were never actually University of Texas teammates on the same varsity team. But he did come to Texas as a freshman the one year that I trained there for a pro, as a pro, and I loved getting to know him. I had met him uh, that summer at the World University Games when he was coming out of high school and I was finishing up my senior year, and he just he wanted to learn. He wanted to soak up all of the knowledge of all the older people around him, and he was a sponge, and he was he just wanted to work his butt off, and get to these really, really high ambitions that he had for himself. And I saw it from day one. And we talk about in the podcast something that I think is the best reflection of his ambition. So at that World University Games in 2013, 
Jack went a time in the 200 backstroke that was the fourth fastest in the world that year as a high schooler. He was the fourth fastest of the, in the world in backstroke. And he got to college. And what happens to a lot of people when they get to college, and by the way, for the better, for the most part, his body changed. He got stronger. Uh, muscles got bigger. Shoulders filled out. <clears throat> and what happens to a lot of people that are backstrokers out of high school, myself included, is when their body changes, there's this really weird feel that you lose in backstroke. And Jack, his freshman year, went from being fourth in the world to eighth at the NCAA championships, so a much smaller sample size and dropping four spots, and then actually not even making the A-final at the Summer Nationals that summer after his freshman year. So he dropped from being fourth in the world to not even being top eight in his own country. Now, a lesser person would have wallowed, would have been stuck in that identity of, well, I'm a backstroker, so what the hell do I do now, right? They would just keep digging themselves deeper and deeper into that hole, banging themselves, banging their heads against the wall, and just finding more and more ways to be frustrated with themselves because they would just resign themselves to the fact of, well... I'm a backstroker, that's my identity, and since I suck at backstroke, I guess I suck. Now, Jack didn't suck at backstroke by any stretch, but the delta between who he was when he left high school and who he was a year later was enough that he probably felt pretty down about it. But Jack's ambitions were bigger than backstroke. Jack wanted to be an Olympian. Jack wants to be a world record holder someday. Jack wants to, wanted to be one of the greatest swimmers in the history of Texas. So what Jack did is he adapted. And we talk about in the episode a pretty fateful event <clears throat> when he asked one of the coaches in December of his sophomore year after a little bit more frustration to start the year in backstroke, he was like, guys, can I time trial a 200 fly with my roommate who asked to do this 200 fly? Anyway, <laughs> I won't spoil anything that happened in the episode, but he went a very fast time and from that moment on pivoted into butterfly and sprint freestyle and the rest is history he has a dozen ncaa titles he has multiple american ncaa records and most importantly he has an olympic gold medal all because he pivoted into butterfly and freestyle because his ambition was bigger than his identity and he was able to pivot and make the necessary moves to both survive and to thrive and i think we can all learn from that So without further ado, uh, my good friend, Olympic gold medalist and fellow Longhorn, uh, Jackie Boy, Jack Conger. Computer. All right, I'm here with Jack Conger. Um, Former Texas swimmer like myself, we're fellow Texas X's, uh, professional athlete who swam for the LA Current last year, and a gold medalist at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. Uh, just got back from, I think, a swim and a lift this morning. Actually, I got lucky. It was just, it was just a lift this morning. I'll, I'll, I'll swim at 3.30. Those are the best kind of mornings when you can just focus on the weight room. Um, hanging in his apartment in Charlottesville, Virginia. How you doing today, Jack? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's good to have you. Um, yeah, it was, those are always the best mornings. You know, it was, it was, it was, it's always great just to be able to go over, get my lift in, 
um, have a couple hours off before I have to focus and dial back in for afternoon practice with Todd. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, that is one of my favorite things that happened with the pro lifestyle was at, at least at our program at Texas. Um, you know, if, if there was a lift, it was probably after a swim and it was probably in the afternoon and it was after going to practice at 6am, which you still do. But I have found that the pro schedule, when you're just like settled into it, no school and it's your job, like it is for you, there's really awesome spaces you can find for yourself, i.e. a morning lift that's not super early and there's no swimming on either side of it immediately. Yes. So go ahead. Sometimes you get, sometimes, sorry, sometimes you get kind of lucky and um, everything kind of maneuvers its way into, you know, you once or two you know, depending on where I am in the season, you know, right now it's, you know, I'll get a solid two lifts a week where I won't have to swim beforehand. And mm -hmm. I really just focus on that lift that day. And then a couple hours after that, I'll focus on um, whether it's a very structured two fly um, set written by Blair or Tyler, or whether it's a hundred fly or hundred free set that's very structured on hundred free or hundred fly from top. Mm -hmm. um yeah you know, it kind of just depends where i am in the week and in the year and um you know it is rocktober after all so you know just todd's a big believer in that yeah and that's something whether todd got it from texas or it's just something in the ether for people who don't know rocktober was something that jack and i always would say at texas even though we were never teammates it was something that was said every year rocktober is where you worked your hardest you're into the season, September's to shake the rust off, and you're the furthest from the NCAA, so it's where you put in the serious, serious work. Um, being Rocktober and this being like the prime of the season to work out, yeah. could you maybe take everyone through um, just briefly like what your day-to-day -day schedule is during the week and the types of work that you're doing as your job as a professional? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think this year and right now, with COVID is very different from what I was doing last year. And even mm -hmm. when I first um, kind of got settled with Todd. Um, so there's two different answers, right? Yeah, so, sure. So normally I would have practice Monday, Monday morning from six to eight. And I would have, I, I would have a couple hours off and I wouldn't have to be in the weight room until around 11. Um, and then I would lift from like 11:15 to anywhere from 12:45 to 1:15, depending on how long my work sets and my warm up and those kind of things took me. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would get back in the water um, around 3:30 and some from 3:30 to 5:30. Um, and then I would have morning practice again from six to eight on Tuesdays. On Tuesdays, gotcha. And then I would have, excuse me, the the rest of the afternoon off until I think dry land around four fifteen, no three fifteen three fifteen because we would do dry land for an hour mm -hmm. and three fifteen to four fifteen and then swim from four fifteen to around five or to around to six thirty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it ish. Um, no, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Hey, Getting all confused. And yeah, then, swim practice runs together. We all forget what it exactly is sometimes. Um, and then anywhere from a Wednesday morning 
hunter fly work where um, the college kids would lift before they swam. Um, my being a professional athlete, I told Todd right when I got to Charlottesville that I specifically wanted to keep those separate um, because I wanted to be able to get more out of my lift and not really rush through my work sets and make sure that I'm everything, my glutes are firing because um, you want to make sure that everything's kind of activated and you want to make sure you get your rehab in and your prehab and this and that um, and kind of just make sure that you take advantage of all the opportunities that are given to you being a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally I would, I would hop in around 15 minutes earlier to get a little bit more warmed up and get revved up before the college kids jumped in with them because it, um, Wednesday mornings are awesome because they're norm. They're always long course and hundred fly in about a little less than 90 minutes. And it was, it was sweet. Um, but every single yard in that practice was either max effort or it was resistance or it had, I had a rack or I had something attached to me or I was doing a max effort or a blast start, you know, every single yard or meter in that practice meant something. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's something that's super unique. And then, or I would do a Wednesday afternoon practice. Um, and that would be a 200 fly set. Mm -hmm. Um, and Todd and I would kind of rotate whether or not I would do hundred or 200 fly work throughout the week. And then it would be awesome because Thursday mornings were off and then we had dry land again at night. Um, and then followed by that hour dry land follows a two hour swim. Mm -hmm. Um, and normally there I would do, I would do a Blair Tyler red set. And if I got lucky, Todd would let me, you know, do 50 per day with him, which is amazing. Sure. Um, and then after that, we'll go back into the routine of my, my, my Friday would always follow my Monday. So Mm -hmm. it would be a two hour swim, a couple hours off. I would get in the weight room and then it would follow be, be followed by another two hour swim at night. Mm Mm-hmm give or take, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you know, whatever the coaches have planned for that day. And then Saturday mornings are super ugly and awful. And <laughs> why do you say that? Uh, Saturday mornings are the worst on a, a numerous, lo- just they're, they're really, they're really difficult and hard. Um, the way that Todd runs his Saturday mornings and it's, you're so tired and beat up and not, and you know, that, that, being said that's for everyone it's the end of the week it's your last practice and we'll have an hour of dry land from seven to eight and then we'll Mm -hmm. swim from eight to ten and the genre of that workout from and just so everyone knows i was a volunteer there for the 1819 season and was a month and a half into my job when you decided to come when you decided to come to virginia and Saturdays felt like the crescendo of the week. It was whether it was a race day or not, it felt like the big day of yeah, the week. Saturday. And there it was it was an event. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Saturdays were rough. Um, you know, they still are. <laughs> uh the theme of the day on Saturdays is is just a enormous amount of max of, of not max effort, but um Todd likes to call it hard time or hard effort. Mm -hmm. um hundreds whether they're kick or swim and you know if i'll get lucky or unlucky as i would like to say um they'll be in stroke count or they'll be eight breaths and easy but when you're doing a long course 100 free on 130 after you know doing eight max effort kick 100 kicks um 
you know, that that's a little difficult. Yeah. It's, it's not super easy, but that's kind of the overall theme of the day is, is just a, a ton of hundreds that are, um, like I said, they're, they're a hard time or hard effort or, you know, their max effort or hold kick and mm-hmm. you know, every single yard in that practice is supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have to lock it in and go just as soon as you're done with that 200 easy warm up because, you know, you're not going to get any more easy swimming. Yeah. Have a watch on it for an hour and 55 minutes. Yeah. I, there's so much meat on that bone of how you described your week that I want to dig into. Um, so I'll start with, to go with the food metaphor, uh, the appetizer for that is the, the, one of the really cool things I learned about how Todd and the coaching staff structure their team is basically each primary coach has like a, like a, like a tent that they set up every, every practice. So like Todd is the pure sprint coach and he has his group of kids, but also people come in and out on a given day if they need that genre. So like when I was there Monday afternoons, Todd's Todd ran the eight free relay workouts, the 200 freestyle workouts. And some kids would go to that every week, not necessarily all from his group of swimmers that are his swimmers. Absolutely. People would come in and out and some kids would rotate. I'm with Todd this week and not with Todd next week. So, or um, or like, and, and you mentioned doing practices that Blair Bachman and Tyler Fenwick wrote. So like Blair does more aerobic IM work, whereas, uh, Tyler Fenwick is more super distance. And those two things are interchangeable between the two of them based on what each of their swimmers need. Absolutely. And then you have Wes Foltz, who's more long sprint. I am hundreds of stroke people. Yep. And so those kids, yes, they have agency and they talk, they have a lot of meetings with the kids to see what the kids want to accomplish and they'll do the training around that. But as a pro, you're basically looking at this like a buffet. Like, and yeah. so you can slip in, I'm with Todd today doing, you know, 50, 50 free speed work just to get my free speed up. I'm doing racks with Todd's group on whatever day to make sure that my fly kicks are in order. But I'm also doing some aerobic work with Tyler and Blair a couple days a week. So yeah. how, do you, how do you approach that buffet? And is that a conversation with Todd? So how do you guys plan out that week where you're moving through these different pods that are set up? Um, you know, Todd's super methodical with the way that, you know, he sets up each individual week for me and each mm-hmm. individual practice and just kind of approaching it as, you know, it's super event specific or, you know, everything has a purpose. And um, I think that it's super important to understand that every stroke that I'm taking, you know, has a purpose and, you know, I'm not just given mindless garbage yardage, um, which uh, not to say that I, you know, did that for all my years at Texas or growing up swimming at um, RMSC and, and NCAP. Of course. Um, but I think that Todd, the way that Todd will approach it for me is we'll kind of talk about whether, you know, it'll be kind of like a hundred or 200 week for me. And Mm -hmm. if, you know, it's more geared towards a hundred work, hundred workout, um, you know, I'll get to sneak in a 50, a 50 free practice and something like that. Um, and if it's more 200 work, then, you know, I will be doing more, um, more kind of just overall aerobic and more red set and more 200 fly work with Blair and Tyler. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that Todd and I kind of 
cycle 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 through and you Mm -hmm. know it could be week to week it could be day to day it really just kind of depends and you know he's super good about letting me give my input and you know kind of give my two cents in there um Mm -hmm. but i think that you know it, it took a while to kind of establish that base of trust and kind of give it an understanding of why i'm doing what i'm doing every day and kind of allowing it to form very organically between the two of us and have, you know, a very um, professional and working relationship together. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's something that, got, you know, I got, super, I got super lucky with. Well, that's the next part I want to dig into is your, um, your active part. I, I would even call it a partnership that you have with Todd because, it's, it's a contrast that I, like when I was growing up at NBAC and at Texas and then back at NBAC when I was a pro, um, I just never really questioned, even though I had my own, own ideas and I had young coaches that valued my input, I never questioned the idea that the coach, it was like this where the coach is steering the ship and I'm doing what he says. Yeah. And one of the things I've always admired about you is you fall in line with your coach, but you were also someone who was always um very active in conversation with their coach telling them their goals how they want to shape their training and so for the longest time you know you were with the same coach for a long time growing up at club sue walsh and then um going to texas you're with eddie reese for about five and a half years so now you go to this new program um at cavalier aquatics at university of virginia with someone who you've never worked with before, although you admired from afar due to his work with NC State with Ryan Held on the 2016 Olympic team. Mm-hmm. So take me through what influenced your decision to A, leave Texas and B, seek out Cavalier Aquatics. And then, uh, and then after that, we can dig into more specific detail about your first impressions of what's different about that place. Yeah. With like, with like, cause you already mentioned every stroke matters. I want to pull on that thread a little bit more as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that it's it's good to, you know, hit the refresh button and kind of, you know, start, and start something new. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, I was, I was comfortable at, at Texas and with Eddie and Wyatt's plan with what I wanted to do. Um, but I also wanted to, you know, do different things in the weight room and I wanted to do a little bit more sprint work. And I wanted, I had a couple ideas of what, what I thought were super great and what, what I thought, um, what I kind of admired and what I always kind of wanted to do was just a little bit more speed work and mm-hmm. you know, kind of veer away from just, uh, the, not mindless, but just the, the, the long strands of, you know, just heavy, heavy mid D, you know, 200 to 500 work. Sure. VO, VO2 max stuff, like 10, 200 free, descend one to 10. Yeah, you know, if you're not feeling great that day, throw on paddles in a pool buoy maybe. Yeah, and, it should, and you, you keep saying it's not mindless. And I think it's important for both of us to distinguish. I love those workouts because it's just like, take like five of them to get into it and then just like dominate on the way down. But you and me were both like that, where just give me something simple and I'll find my way to it by the end of it. I don't want to think about 10 different things at once, but yeah but you needed a change from that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, and I, I think that that's very natural and that, and that's super, you know, common, um, and not 
sort of, you know, I'm not kind of unique and, you know, I think that's very natural for any professional athlete, mm-hmm. but, you know, after, um, you know, almost six, almost six years, you, you want to start doing something different or something new mm-hmm. and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I didn't necessarily seek out Cavalier Aquatics as much as I, as much as I, you know, had an open, very open conversation with Todd. Mm-hmm. about my goals and what and what we both wanted to get to get from working with each other um and it just kind of you know happened to be very convenient that you know he took the UVA job and growing up in Rockville Maryland that I could be closer to my family um that it just kind of you know all the stars kind of aligned and you know he took the job and you know we sat down and had a meeting um and I, I drove up for the day you know had a meeting with Todd and Tyler for It was probably like a two to three hour meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just drove back. So that was a long day. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was great. And, you know, it was something that, you know, I got to look forward to um, in my last couple of months of Texas was, you know, starting, starting a new chapter. Mm-hmm. And it's a place, I, I think we need to dig in this a little more about your decision to leave just because, for example, I spoke with Allie Tetzloff, who experienced great success at Auburn, and it was her favorite place to be, but she eventually grew out of it because the pro group was kind of this fuzzy concept at the time where she's just doing what the college team is doing. Yeah. So she left for a set pro group at NC State. So for you, I mean, you're one of the most successful swimmers in the history of the University of Texas, three-time team national champ, uh, multiple NCAA titles, American record holder after experiencing all this success with this coach in this program, Mm -hmm. I have to wonder if part of why you wanted to leave was the same thing where you were in rhythm with the college team and it just didn't feel like what you wanted to do anymore now that you weren't in college. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a super, it was a super strange time for, you know, the Texas pros at the time. Um, Cause we had a couple of guys, you know, that, 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 that weren't, you know, someone like Andrew Wilson that, Mm -hmm didn't go to the university of Texas, but you know, he was getting his PhD there. So he was, he was training with us Yeah, and, you know, we kind of had similar ideas of, you know, what we wanted to do structurally. And, um, it was just one of those things that it wasn't necessarily the fact that, sorry, I'm trying to phrase this properly. Go ahead. It's okay. Um, We got time. I really, was looking for being able to do more sprint work and more structurally different things than Eddie would set up during his, during his college week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of really hard to, you know, separate the two, separate the two from that. And not to say that, you know, I'm, I'm on my own here, um, you know, at UVA at Charlottesville, cause I still train with the college team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the way that I approach every practice and every week is slightly different than the college team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being, you know, being a pro and having that ability is, is nice and it's amazing. And it was kind of, it, not to say that it couldn't be done in Austin, but it was getting, it was, it was getting difficult. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was something that, you know, I, I think just very naturally happened. Yeah. It seems to be something that happens a lot when, a team may not necessarily have like a, a pro group yeah. in place. And it was, it was the, the beginnings was happening while you were there, but now Texas obviously has like this thing that people go to the same way that NC state or Cavalier aquatics now, or 
um, Cal Berkeley does. But at the time, it was still very much like what I experienced in 2013 to the 2014, which is just, well, I swam with the college team. I'm still in school. I might as well train here. Yeah. And so, so you decide to make this change. Um, what was it like when you first got there? Because <laughs> I laugh because, A, when you called me and told me you were coming, you know, you and I always remained close over the years, despite not being actual teammates at Texas. Mm -hmm. And the idea of living five minutes away from you was like mind boggling to me and so cool. Uh, but B, when you first got there, the training shock, the shock of the new training was a lot to take on. So could you start with the whole idea of every stroke matters and kind of expand on what you noticed, especially that was different? One sec. So what was that like uh, coming to Charlottesville and having such a, a big contrast between the training you were used to at Texas and what I saw was like a pretty big adjustment you had to make when you got to University of Virginia to adapt from, you know, a mid-distance based training where you're doing a lot of swimming on a, on a watch to I'm thinking about stuff 24-7 and there's four things on my plate at a time. You can start there and then just expand. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's funny because, you know, not necessarily, you know, every stroke will be max effort in every practice. Um, although sometimes it feels like that, you know, I think it took me months to adapt to this style of training because um, going a little bit further into the detail of, you know, every stroke matters is yeah. every yard in Todd's practice has a purpose, um, whether it's, it's setting you, it's setting you up for um, a kick set with socks or it's setting you up for fifties best average or it's, it's setting you up for going on the racks or whether or not he just wants to kind of test you and just, you know, see how far, you know, you can descend your hundreds that specific day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that he's kind of, you know, a little, a little sprinting guru of, you know, figuring out the nuts and bolts and figuring out the, the real ways of, you know, kind of how he haven't, kind of having the idea of how you know how to do a specific 100 or 200 mm -hmm. um, or whatever that may be you know I would I would never consider myself a, a 50 freestyler um but you know sometimes I get lucky and I get to do those 50 freestyle practices mm -hmm. um but in that in that those two hours of doing a 50 free practice you know we won't do over three grand in two hours which is which is crazy to me because I those I only got those practices at Texas when we were tapering Mm -hmm. um but in that specific practice i we would get a 200 easy at to start and then we wouldn't have uh you know an, another easy stroke unless we got like a 50 easy in between racks or something like that you know until we were done warming down and that's if we were you know given a warm down set mm -hmm. um and so yeah i, I want to and i want to dig more into practices like that where it's two hours you, you might as well not even count the yardage. How do you even count yards from racks, right? Yeah. And so, and Andrew Sheaf, who's one of the coaches there, when I first got there, I asked him about the philosophy of what they were going on, of what they had going on. And he said, they basically find a thousand different ways to attack and approach like one or two skills. And so with the equipment, with the racks, was that tough to adapt to? Um, did you have to kind of shift a training mindset to understand like, yes, the socks and the paddles and the fins and the fact that I'm not going fast on a watch is important. So how did you kind of change that mindset? 
you know, it took, it took a long time to kind of adapt to that and kind of, you know, understand and kind of realize and, and really just kind of figure out what I was, you know, doing in that specific practice, because a lot of it was, you know, I've always, I grew up and at Texas was always very yardage based. And so, you know, I kind of like had those little mental checks in my head. Um, but here, you know, you, you almost, you throw the yards out of the equation mm-hmm. and it's, it's just all very stroke and very event based, um, in each, in each practice. Um, but something that Todd and I kind of always talk about is, you know, whether I'm hitting my times or not, or whether I'm, you know, I'm going ridiculous times in practice or whether I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but it's to always kind of have that relentless mindset of thinking about thinking about one specific thing in that mm-hmm. practice or mm-hmm. in that set, or, you know, it is really just kind of trying to live in that moment of what can I do right now to just get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not, you know, you, you put um, performance out of the equation, but just really trying to, you know, live in the moment and get better at what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that took a long time to adjust to. Yeah. And you're someone who, Again, like me, similar feeder, like great club programs growing up, great Texas, great college team like Texas, where your checkpoints were the watch and the yardage count, less yardage count for me. I didn't care what yards I was doing. I trusted it was enough, but you, you counted on the watch. I know I can go this in a 50 free. I know I can go this in a hundred kick. I know I can do this in a 200 free. So, and that is at its core being results versus process oriented. And that's something you and I talked about a lot when you first moved. Was there a big change, not just in your training mindset, but overall your approach to swimming that you had to make with process versus results to adapt to the training mentally as well as physically? Yeah. You know, I, you know, physically, you know, you take that, that kind of, you know, very, high velocity and and high energy and low yardage but super sprint oriented and specific training you know will take a will will take a beating on your body but more mm-hmm. mentally i just had to um shift shift my focus and and shift and kind of just let everything happen naturally and you know stop worrying about the nitty gritty details and just understand that um you know yes i moved i you know I took a chance and it was something that I wanted to do. And, you mm-hmm. know, just, just owning up that, you know, whatever the result was, it was, it's just, you know, kind of all about the process mm-hmm. and just all about understanding that, you know, working hard every day and understanding that eventually those results will pay off and whether they're, whether or not you get those results when you want them is just kind of more or less understanding the entire process of, you know, just putting that work in every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding the big picture of it, I guess. Right. Yeah. But it was hard to, you know, shift, shift the training mindset because, um, you know, I, it was super, you know, very clock oriented work. Um, and we still, I still do a lot, a lot of that here. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a lot of pace work at UVA. It should be, it should be noted. Yeah. There is a ton. There's (laughs) the 200 free and 200 fly days. That's all you do for 90 minutes. Yes. Yes. It's, it's brutal. Um, you know, but it, it's very event specific where um, at Texas, you know, we just would get tons of sets mm-hmm. and we would just all kind of race each other. Mm-hmm. 
um, which was amazing, which was, which was super fun. But, you know, you, I came here and it was just very, very event and stroke and um, oriented, which was just some, something so different than I, what I've ever done before. And cool things to me, like uh, on the event specific thing, they would have um, the volunteers print out sometimes, um, say we were doing our 200 free day and Todd wanted people to do hundreds, you know, end around with two 100s at the second hundred of their 200 pace. And yeah. he had printouts, ACC, champion, ACC championships, this is the pace that the first place person did in the, fir- in the last hundred. This is the pace that the eighth place person got in the prelims to make the final. And so it's all very, it's extremely oriented around um, like real world results and you're training towards, I know that this is the exact thing that's going to help me with that thing. Yeah. And, and a lot of that was frustrating to me because, you know, we wouldn't really do that type of specific pace work at Texas until we were resting and tapering mm-hmm. so that not to say that it was easy, but easier to hit all those pace times, you know, and now I'm in October and, you know, now Todd wants, wants me to push just back to back 45s and hundreds free um, when they're on, you know, 130 or 145. I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. And um, whether or not, you know, I'll, I'll hit, I'll hit a back half time or I'll, I'll hit all my pace fifties, but just kind of understanding that, you know, making sure that I give it my, I give it my all and I give it my, my best effort to stay in kick count or stroke count and mm-hmm. to kind of stay in living in the moment of that practice. You know, that is kind of what will help you get the results that you kind of want yeah. from this style of training all right. and throw out, throw out, throw out the times, but just really live in the moment of that set of what you're doing. And feel like you're basically rehearsing the portion of the race that you're training that day. Like yeah. you're mentally in that space of this is the last hundred of my hundred freestyle or the, of my 200 freestyle. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to, I want to take it back a couple years. Um, Cause this adaptation's not new to you. Uh, you've had to adapt before and just to catch everybody up to speed. I met Jack when he was a recruit uh, coming out of high school you and Ryan Murphy were basically neck and neck in the 200 back. You had both just finaled the Olympic trials as high school juniors. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I recruited you, it was like Jack Ryan Murphy, you know, who's who. And you came to Texas, Ryan went to Cal. And before your freshman year, you went to the world university games with me. I did. Um, Awesome week hanging out. I was like, man, I'm so stoked for this guy to be at Texas beyond the point. Um, you made, you went a time in the 200 back at that meet as a rising freshman in college that was fifth in the world at the 200 back in the 200 back. And it was like, whoa. So after that was actually this really interesting thing that happened that I want, I really want to get your insight on your freshman year. The training was different. Your body changed from lifting weights and getting strong. And you got eighth in the 200 back at, at the NCAAs after being one of the five best people in the world at it long course and being a record holder short course in it. And then that summer, were you eighth? What were you that summer at the nationals in the 200 back? <laughs> oh, it was bad. I, I don't even, I, 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 I don't think I finaled. Um, I think, I think you and me might've been in the B final today together actually to yeah. give people an idea. I had never broken two minutes at that point And Jack was a 154. So that happens 
and then just to give everybody like the ending, you become one of the best 200 flyers in the world, make the Olympic team in the 200 free and get a gold on the A3 relay in Rio and become one of the best flyers in the history of the NCA, the best 200 flyer in the history of the NCA in your sophomore, junior and senior year. Mm-hmm. So what, what changed? Cause people rarely are able to pivot entirely different strokes, entirely different events, the way that you did and find even more success than they did before. So what was that change like for you specifically? Oh, it really wasn't one specific change um, that I, that I made, you know, you know, in 2016, I still did a ton of, a ton of backstroke work with Eddie, you know, my junior year. Um, to kind of, you know, prepare to swim the 100 or 200 back at trials and not mm-hmm. really, and, you know, play my lineup, my lineup, you know, by ear, because that's not really a big thing of, of locking it, locking it in a year out. Okay. Um, so, you know, I still did a ton of, back, of backstroke work, but I think a lot of me becoming a freestyler and butterflyer um, just kind of happened very organically and naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but one specific thing I can remember and can share with you is my sophomore year um, at Texas during Christmas training, you know, we all suited up and, and Eddie was kind of give, letting the guys pick and choose what they wanted to do that day. And um, Matt Ellis wanted to do 200 fly. And he was my roommate at the time. And I was like, I was like, I'll do a 200 fly with you like that. I was like, I was like, I'm down for that. I haven't done fly fly yet all, all week and what feels like in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of suit up and go from a dive and, you know, see what I can do and, and that kind of thing. And yeah. in the middle of Christmas training, ironically, I think I dove a 141 high. And at that point in time, yeah. that would have gotten, I think, second or third at NCAAs the previous year. Mm-hmm. And, and was a, about a second off the current American record. Yeah. And, and Cubic looks down at his watch and he's like, turning his head and I didn't know kind of, I didn't really realize how fast I went. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple weeks later we dueled Arizona and I told Eddie, I was, I was like, Hey, like, can I suit up and, you know, see if I can do that again in the tuner fly and see whether it was just a fluke or not mm-hmm. in practice. And then I think I dove a one forty point high and, you know, broke and broke Joe's team record in it and, you know, and did this and did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't something that necessarily, Eddie and I were looking for it just kind of just it just kind of happened you know and I still did a ton of freestyle and backstroke training mm-hmm. um through the end of through the end of my career at Texas um did it take a little bit of work because a lot of swimmers a lot of our identity gets wrapped up in the events that we're good at so like someone will ask you what do you, what what kind of swimmer are you and I'll be like I'm an I am right mm-hmm. and so just to kind of prime you for this answer like I'm so I had a good freshman year in the 200 back and then for some reason my stroke changed and I actually had a really rocky like six years relationship with backstroke but I didn't have this 200 fly as an outlet to basically pull the lever and be done with backstroke um so I want to know was it hard to detach from your identity as a 200 backstroker and slip into fly or were you just like more than happy to do it right away I think in the in the time and in the moment I was more than happy to do it because I had failed recently in the in backstroke and that was super frustrating to me because I always identified as a backstroker mm-hmm. um so in the moment it was super easy for me to detach and just kind of become a butterfly and freestyler but you know looking back now it's just like cool like what is what is the what is my best event 
mm-hmm. you know, so, so now it's, it's, it's kind of funny looking back and just kind of trying to answer that question is, is more than a one word answer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and I guess what I'm gathering from what you're saying, and it'll lead into our next question in these conversations with Eddie getting ready for the 2016 Olympic trials, which you had three years at Texas to get ready for, it was more important to you that you would be able to break through and make the Olympic team than be good at any one specific event that was important to you. And I think, I think that's a super important athletic skill is not be detached to something you like or attached to something you like, but what's just, what is it going to take to get there? And I'll just do that instead. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, at, at that time, you know, I, I think my best shot was in the 200 fly and 200 free to get that done. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous year, you know, that was in 2015, you know, that was when Michael, Michael went off and, and he posted times that he hadn't done in nearly, nearly a decade, not, mm-hmm. not a decade, but five, six years, he, he was, he, you know, he finally kind of made that breakthrough of, of it, of in 100, 200 fly and in 200 IM of you know posting these world dominating times that you know he didn't go to worlds that year but all his times from nationals would have won worlds and mm-hmm. you know you you know that michael you know rises to the rises to the occasion that's super obvious you know he's the goat for a reason and so you know that he would have gone those times at worlds if not faster mm-hmm. you know, not to say that you know i didn't put up a good fight but you know racing racing a kid versus you know racing someone like Chad LeClo. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's super. It was, so going back, 200, it was 200 fly, 200 free were my best, my best chances. Mm-hmm. Um, and those kind of, they go back to back at trials. Um, so, you know, I, I, met, I won a best time in prelims, won a best time in semis and, and really wanted to give it my all. Um, even though I had semis of 200 fly, you know, I think it was 17 minutes after, you know, the finals of 200 free, you know, I wanted to stamp my ticket on the Olympic team and making my first Olympics mm-hmm. um, and ended up getting third, which was, you know, you know, in the moment, super, super amazing. And then looking back, it's just like, oh, like man, like I got out touched by a 10th by Tally and Connor. Yeah. Um, and then, and then next, and then having to switch gears just like that and really going into a 200 fly and, and, you know, I was next to Michael and semis and, you know, just being totally gassed and really just like trying to figure out what, how can I, how can I make finals? Mm-hmm. How can I final after just giving, after just totally emptying the tank in that 200 free and I end up actually getting eighth. So which that's all you needed was a lane. So what happened in that 17 minutes? Uh, Cause it's, there's not even enough time to really warm down. So physically and mentally, what did you put yourself through in those 17 minutes to get ready to hop back up on the blocks again? Cause it's not like it's a college dual means where it's like, oh, I got a, you know, a 200 free and then a 200 back and I'm just going to try my best. This is the Olympic trials. Everything's on the line. Um, I think I was, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was super, happy obviously and you know high on just making the and just making the olympics and mm-hmm. you know i think that kind of just really allowed myself to go through the process of rather um the opposite effect of if i didn't make it or if something went wrong you know i would put 
so much more pressure on myself to make finals in the tuner fly. And, you know, maybe the result wouldn't have been the same, mm-hmm. you know, but I think almost, you know, making the team in the two free um, took a lot of pressure off myself, even though I was super tired and gassed um, for that two fly semi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you, you were know, riding on a high that like you almost didn't feel anything, right? Yeah. Like, even, even though I did, you know, right when I dove into that water and that 200 fly, I was, I was like, Oh man, like I already, I was like, I was like, oh, that first 50, I was like, man, I already feel like this. Like, I got, <laughs> like this isn't, this isn't supposed to feel like a, a middle of the season 200 fly, you know, I'm, I'm at trials. Right. But that was just something that, you know, I had to switch that gear and get it out of my head and just, you know, try and lock and load and, you know, live in the moment of that 200 fly and it all worked out. And, you know, I, I got eighth and then the next day, uh, I got third, um, you know, Michael and Tom, Michael and Tom, you know, beat me. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a, a close race for second to third. Um, you know, there, there was some separation there. Um, and so was I upset, you know, at the time? No. Um, but, you know, looking back, it's like, man, like it would have been somewhat, it would have been so much cooler or better, you know, to make it an individual, mm-hmm. but that's kind of, you know, living in the coulda, shoulda, woulda world. Of course. Um, you know, I wanted to shift gears because I still had a hunter fly left and I still firmly believe that, you know, I could make the team in the hunter fly, you know, Mike, you know, Mike, you, you Sharpie in Michael. Yeah, of course. You know, you know, the goat's going to, going to win. Yeah. But that second spot's up for grabs. Yeah. So, you know, and then I, ironically, I get fourth. Um, But from second to fifth was not even the span of a 10th of a second. That's unbelievable. You know, it was, it was Tom and then it was Seth and then it was me and then it was Tim Phillips. And mm-hmm. I think we were all 51 twos, you know, which isn't great, but, um, you know, that got the job done that day. And that mm-hmm. year. Um, and it, it just, whoever had the longest fingernails that day was the one that got it done. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. So you make this Olympic team. Um, I want to know about the experience of being at the meet. Uh, Cause you had done junior team, you know, you and me were in a similar USA swimming funnel growing up where we made junior teams and we made world university games teams where you had won gold uh, the year before. And so you had done international events for the United States. How did the Olympics feel different to you, especially being at the pool and the competitive aspect of it and just like the general vibe of what was going on? You know, that's, that's, that's hard to answer. Cause you know, I only swam once. Right. Um, but you can take me through just what happened that day, just how you got ready for that prelims and how it was maybe different or the same as all your other races before. You know, I wanted, you know, I knew that it was different because in the back of my head, you know, I want, I needed to post a time that, you know, was substantially different than everyone else to, you know, put on, be put mm-hmm. on that night relay. Um, which I, I understood before going in. Um, but I wanted to treat it as, you know, a very, you know, as if it was like an NCAA race because I didn't want to unload an enormous amount of, you know, pressure on myself because that's really the only pressure that can affect you is, you know, what you put on yourself, you know? So I didn't really want to unleash that on my, on my, on my body. Um, cause that, or my mind, cause that's just not really fair. You know, mm-hmm. I just want to live in the moment and do that best 200 free from the swing that I could. Um, and I did. 
Um, but you know, was it, was it the fastest time that I, you know, could have, should have done, you know, not necessarily no or yes or no, but you know, it's, it's what I, it's what I posted and it's what I needed to do to, you know, advance the U S through, um, making it to the night. And, uh, you know, it was super amazing watching, you know, watching, you know, from the stands and watching them win. Um, yeah. Do you remember your race at all? Cause I've talked to people who black out during races. Some of my biggest races, I blacked out until about the last 25. Do you remember that race or how it felt or any of the sights or sound that you were taking in, um, before you jumped off the blocks or even when you were swimming? Yeah. Um, very quiet because it was a prelims relay at the Olympics. So it, you know, we were, we were a means to an end. We were, you know, we were there to, to advance, to advance it, the U S to, to put them in the middle, middle, the middle lanes, if not lane four, mm -hmm. four, five, six, three, whatever you want to call it. Sure. You know, we, were, we were there for a means to an end for, for the big guys, you know, but I, there was still, there was still a spot up for grabs. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, you know, super eye opening that, you know, that was kind of available. You and know, to catch people time. up, the two free is special in at the A free relay is special for team USA at the Olympics, because in recent years, people like Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte didn't necessarily qualify, try to qualify for the team um, by doing the event at trials, but they're trusted because they did it international competitions for years before. So they almost get a pass through to the finals because of their past experiences. So it actually has limited spots compared to other relays um, that might be available to Team USA prelim swimmers like yourself. Yeah, I, th I think that, and you know, I, I think that that's that's very normal because you know you get these guys that have decades of success, mm -hmm. and you know, you, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. You know, that's 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 what they live for. You know, they mm -hmm. live in that moment and they breathe, they eat, sleep, breathe it. You know, there's a reason why they're you know Michael is the greatest Olympic champion of all time. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a reason why Ryan's Ryan, and you know you can argue he's the second best of all time. So there's a reason why those guys were there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, it was, it's, you know, I still had that, that opportunity where, you know, I still could fight for that spot. Mm -hmm. And, and then as it is an inevitability at this point for the men's A for really for team USA, um, the finals guys got it done. They won the gold. Yeah. And you yourself are a gold medalist as well because of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the meet ends, and this is the part that, you know, people however people think about it there the incident that happened in rio that became world news because mainly because of um Lochte's handling of it for a couple months my personal belief is that there was a lot of people really digging into the ugly american abroad aspect that hurt you guys a little bit but i don't really want to relive the the experience for you because i think it's been picked over and frankly i don't want to give more energy to it but on this podcast what I am obsessed with is the mechanics of what goes into being a professional. So even though you were still in college, you're an Olympian, you're one of the best swimmers in the world. And now you're at the center of the news cycle coming back home from Brazil and Rio. So being a college kid, his whole life, that was not, you know, you were in the news, but it was because you swam fast or you made the Olympic team or uh, Rockville newspaper says, you know, local Jack Conger makes the Olympic team. And now 
there's a media narrative about you that you have to deal with. So what was that aspect of your job like coming home from Rio to this media storm? Uh, what were those next couple months like where you had to do that aspect of your job for yourself? It was hard because, you know, I wasn't a pro at the time. You know, I still had a year of eligibility left. But of course, not a literal professional, but this is your life. And I, that's, yeah. I think that's an important distinction. Absolutely. But I got a taste of what it's like being a pro and, and being in the spotlight and not necessarily for the right reason. Um, but, you know, it was hard. You know, you know, people looked at me differently on campus. Um, you know, you could hear murmurs and rumors and stuff like that. And, you know, it was very unsettling for a while. But basically, I, you know, I had to very quickly learn um, you know, what it's like doing, having to do public relations and crisis management mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of, you know, not necessarily, you know, there is a very much, you know, a playbook for that specific, for those specific stuff, but that wasn't something that I was really ready for in that specific time. So it was very much, you know, learn, learning as I go, as I go through it and, you know, whether I handle it the best way or not best way, you know, I, I kind of think is semantics at this point. Of, absolutely was, and we're not picking over that it was a super it, it still looking back you know i still think it was an amazing experience that i got to go through and i think it still you know knocked down a bunch of doors for me and you know for opportunities in the future for what i want to do absolutely was there any takeaways you learned about the world of pr like and again i'm only looking for the learning part of it and i personally believe that you guys handled it the best you could and we're treated pretty unfairly, if I'm being honest with everybody listening right now. What did you learn that has helped you moving forward about PR and about how things work in that side of sports that has helped you after on the aftermath? So it's it's it was it was super interesting because you know every single decision that you made mattered. Mm -hmm. You know, at the specific time of when I released my statement mattered. Mm -hmm the specific day, the specific time, you know, what, you know, my grammar, what I would, each word, each sentence mattered because it, it was, it was being read, it was being read from a variety of different people, but it was also, it was also being read from millions around the world or not millions, but thousands. We could say millions. I don't think that's blowing it up too much, but it was still, it was still being read by, you know, people that were about to determine my future for the next eight to 12 months is, as you could call it. So it was something that I learned that, you know, I really had to live in that moment because my, the actions I made then and there were going to determine my future for almost a year. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really just kind of, you know, owning up to, you know, what happened, you know, dealing with it, living in that moment. And at the same time, just realizing and just kind of understanding that, you know, you're going to make some pretty big, big boy decisions right now. And whether you like it or not, you're in that position. And just, yeah, it's, um, it's adding more thought to more hours, like being on, I guess, being, you know, the, the public version of Jack Conger, more hours of the day, right? Absolutely. Like kind of how you carried yourself literally mattered on a second to second basis some days. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's all I really wanted from that. Um, I want to move into something that I've been asking uh, your fellow professional swimmers about because you're a professional swimmer now. It's fuzzy what that means to people. Um, I think that's going to change now that the ISL 
is a pro sports league like the MLB or the NFL and people can just be on a team and say, Hey, I'm a member of the Toronto Titans or the LA current, like you were last year. Mm-hmm. And if that's, and people are like, Oh, you're a pro swimmer. Then they, they get that. But you're someone who there was a lot that went into getting over to Budapest to be part of the ISL this year. And your goals are more focused on the Olympics to the point where you were willing to pass up the opportunity. So can you take me through, and you don't have to give specifics, but this is something I ask everybody. How do you piece together your living income as a professional swimmer? And what are, what's like the pie chart and how is it split out based on the things that you do, whether it's appearances for your name or support from your NGB or um, even swim clinics that you do from time to time? How do you kind of plan out your salary in that way? Uh, you know, I think a big pie portion um, comes from, um, you know, the USOC and, you know, kind of like a base almost. Mm-hmm. And you know, if a clinic will fall in my lap, you know, two to four times a year where, you know, all the stars are aligned. So it's super, um, it makes sense to do that clinic that specific day or that weekend or whatever. Um, so, you know, though that kind of, you know, will fall in my lap from time to time and I'll do a couple appearances per year where I'll also be paid for that. And I think I'm super unique in the fact that I'll give my talk based on my Olympic experience in 2016 and, and, and really dealing with what I had to deal with in Rio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of unique. And then you have this whole new, um, league and stream of revenue in terms of you know the isl in terms of making a salary for yourself so that was something that you know was not unexpected last year but was also very not convenient but it just very much it just kind of happened and just kind of flowed the way that it did and it was it was amazing um so i think that you know having something like the isl and like season two is amazing and great Um, but it's something that, you know, I wanted to lock down and, you know, dig and dive deeper into Rocktober and, you know, really getting the nitty gritty details ironed out with Todd Mm -hmm. and really just being where I, I moved so that, you know, I could get a great couple months of training in. And, you know, I think there's something to be said about, you know, racing a lot is how you get into the best shape. And it's like, yeah, I, I can understand that philosophy and there's some truth to that. Absolutely. Um, but just really just making sure that I'm doing everything I need to be doing and I'm doing everything that Todd wants. Um, and that's something that, you know, we have concerns going into this, the second year of the ISL dealing with COVID. Um, mm-hmm. so it, was, it was something that, you know, I was definitely willing to give up so that I would give myself and Todd and I had a big open dialogue about it of, you know, giving myself the best opportunity for 2021. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like the experiment they do with kids where you tell them, Hey, you can have, and this isn't reflecting thoughts on people who went to the ISL. It's more how you are thinking about planning out your year. Someone came into the room and said, Hey, you can have one marshmallow now. Or if you say no to the marshmallow, you could potentially get four marshmallows later. Yeah, exactly. That being, that being um, I mean, just to be plain money, or future opportunities when you do take the next step next summer, um, expanding your event list at the Olympics and getting other medals in events that beyond relays and maybe even um, being someone that represents the team um, on an individual level in a couple different events. Like that to you seems like a 
bigger bet on yourself than taking the sure thing and giving up a month and a half of training uh, to go do the ISL, which is like a bird in the hand versus another metaphor for in the bush. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's something that I've kind of always done throughout my career is, you know, you know, is to just bet on yourself and, you know, invest in yourself and just make sure that everything you're doing has a purpose and an understanding. Mm-hmm. So it was nothing very, it was nothing super new to me. Um, but, you know, what, you know, kind of, you know, watching from afar right now, it's like, it's like, yeah, I miss my friends and my teammates, but it's still, I'm super happy and I'm super blessed to be in the position that I'm in right now with Todd, where we can get all of these nitty gritty details of, of, of work and done right now so that it really will set me up the best way for 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to let you go in a little bit because I, I know we got to wrap it up here. But I have been thinking a lot lately about visualization and goal setting. So I'm wondering if you ever partake in any sort of mental imaginative part of goal setting where you have goals for yourself or you visualize yourself swimming races or you have a way of big picture goal, seasonal goal, uh, daily goal. Can you maybe take us through some sort of template that you have for yourself that's worked in the past and you're engaging today? Yeah, I think I think before every every season, you know, I'll 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 make goal times for myself, and you know, I'll sit down and I'll really, you know, I'll literally handwrite what what my goals are for that year. You know, there's short term and long term short term and long term goals. Excuse me, um, and whether a short term goal is you know hitting specific times in a 200 and a 200 set or whether that's, you know, making the Olympic team that specific year mm-hmm. in specific events. Um, but really just kind of sitting down and having those details out with your coach in my mind and having that open relationship is super important that, you know, you want to have that trust and you want to be able to build on that report. Um, so definitely being able to kind of live and live and understand that, you know, I am a firm believer in goal setting and, you know, and love doing short and long-term goal setting, um, little, little details, um, which is, which is, which is nice and which is, has always kind of worked for me in the past, but taking that a step further, you know, me not necessarily really worrying about every single practice, but just kind of understanding that, you know, okay, today I, today I'm going to do a red set day and today I'm going to really try and expand my base as big as it, as big as it really can be right now. And, you know, to kind of dive deeper and, you know, go back into those 500 days and go back into those relentless 200 days or, or shifting focus and, you know, doing a hundred fly set and really, Mm -hmm. really worrying about hitting a back half 50 pace or worry about doing racks and trying to hit an open 50 pace in the middle of the season. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. That was really good. Um, Jack, I love this, man. I love our talks. We're going to have to do this again, um, but you got to go. You got to go. Uh, you're not getting swole, but what's, what's this afternoon's practice that you're about to head over to? Today is Wednesday afternoon. Um, so today will be a, today will be a 200 day and I don't know whether today I'll have 200 fly or 200 free work. I'll find out in a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> Well, as always, I'll be rooting from afar either way. So, Jack, thank you so much, buddy. Thanks for having me.